RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. The government moves to extend coronavirus restrictions to ban large group gatherings during staycations at guest houses and hotels. Police arrest three former pro-democracy lawmakers over protests inside LegCo earlier this year. And a long-awaited second route to the airport will open before the end of the year. The government says it will beef up coronavirus restrictions to ban large gatherings of people at so-called staycations in local hotels and guest houses to stave off a possible fourth wave of COVID-19 infections. However, officials say the trade will be consulted before current restrictions on gatherings in public areas are extended to cover hotels and guest houses. Cecil Wong reports. For now, the government's coronavirus gathering ban does not apply to private places, including hotels and guest houses. But officials say there's been an increasing trend of large groups of people gathering during staycations at such venues, often without masks. One such gathering at a Muiwo hotel has led to a cluster of COVID-19 cases, and authorities say it's now time to extend restrictions to hotels as well. The same four-person limit would apply, and authorities would have the right to search premises where such gatherings are suspected to be taking place. A spokesman for the Food and Health Bureau said changing the law would make it easier for hotel operators to prevent large group gatherings, adding that a new defense clause would be introduced to protect operators who've done everything they can to try to comply with the regulations. Experts have been warning of the dangers of hotels housing both locals on staycations and people returning from foreign countries who are observing a mandatory quarantine. The government says the new ban would reduce cross-infection risks between such confinees and local guests. Three former lawmakers from the city's pro-democracy camp have been arrested in connection with protests at the Legislative Council earlier this year when it was discussing a law criminalising disrespect to the national anthem. Candace Wong reports. Former lawmakers Ted Hoi, Ray Chan and Chu Hoi Dick posted on their social media pages that police officers had come to their homes to arrest them. The police confirmed that the three had been arrested for contempt and administering a noxious substance with intent to endure a grief or annoy. Ted Hoi's arrest was linked to him allegedly bringing a rotting plant into the Lechko chamber on May 28th and splashing a liquid around a meeting room on June Fourth, Ray Chan and Chu Hoi Dick were arrested over a separate alleged incident in the council chamber on June 4th. The pair allegedly splashed around a liquid said to be biofertilizer, leading to an hours-long delay to a meeting over a bill to criminalize disrespect of the national anthem. Pro-government lawmakers called the police. Mr. Hoy's plant antics on May 28th were also alleged to have taken place during a meeting on the anthem bill, which was eventually passed. Mr. Chan and Mr. Chu left Lechko when Beijing extended the legislature's term by a year, saying the move was unconstitutional and the lawmakers had no mandate to stay on. Mr. Hoy resigned last week along with all the remaining pan-democratic lawmakers following the disqualification of four of their allies. The former lawmakers have been released on bail and were told their case would be brought before West Kowloon Court this tomorrow afternoon. District Councillor Andy Yu says the police have dropped a fine issued to a 12-year-old girl that an officer tackled in September amid protests against the postponement of the LegCo elections. The girl, as well as her brother, were given fixed penalty tickets in Mongkok for allegedly violating social distancing rules. The family later said the two were only out to buy crayons. The Civic Party councillor said the U-turn showed that the police made a mistake. He said it would help the victims to file a complaint against the police and demand an apology from the police chief. 
A new tunnel connecting Tunmun and the airport will open just after Christmas, cutting journey times and providing an alternative route to Cheklapkok Airport. The government says when the Tunmun Cheklapkok link fully opens on December 27th, it will waive tolls on the new road as well as the existing Lantau link. Transport expert Tat, Dr Hong Wing Tat told RTHK that an alternative route to the airport was long overdue. It makes a little bit of a danger if there's anything happen to that particular link. For example, just accident, a traffic accident you can jam-pack the entire link. And um, I think we, we had that sort of thing happen in the past. And you're tuned to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. Members of the Nepalese community have paid tribute to the seven people who were killed in a fire in Jordan on Sunday night in a tearful memorial. Timmy Sung was there. Scores of people gathered on the pavement opposite the tenement building on Canton Road to sing songs and lay flowers and other offerings in memory of the victims. Some lit candles to mourn the dead. The victims have reportedly been celebrating Diwali and a birthday at an unlicensed Nepalese restaurant inside the building on Sunday when tragedy struck. One of the mourners says she knew some of the victims personally. Very sad. We are very, very, you know, difficult now. You know, still very hard for you to believe. Yeah, very, very, very. Them, I don't know. I cannot thinking how about them. Also, we are very fat, sad, feel right. Then how situation now? I'm first time this situation. Never, I, I don't feel like that. First time in my life, because all my friend, all my friend, you know, relative there, so very. Very difficult. Another man also had a personal connection with some of the dead. Some of them, I know them, yeah. Uh, like a, from same town, yeah, from same town also. We know them here for a long time. That's why we just remember for them, to pray for them. The acting Nepalese council general, Kiran Guran, led a moment of silence during the memorial. He said he hopes the SCR government can provide housing support to those affected. Meanwhile, a foundation created by property tycoon Di Ka-shing said it will be providing $3 million in financial support for the victims' families as well as those injured. Ten people who were hurt in the place remain in hospital, with seven still in critical condition. Career bureaucrat Betty Fung has been named interim head of the troubled West Kowloon Arts Hub, replacing Duncan Pescott, who's leaving the position nine months before his contract is due to expire. Wendy Wong has details. Betty Fung will be seconded from her position as head of the government's Policy, Innovation and Coordination Office to the West Kowloon Cultural District Authority next month. Authority Chairman Henry Tan says she'll remain interim chief until the permanent CEO is found in a global search. Asked by reporters whether he's worried that the career civil servant would be overly bureaucratic, Mr Tan said he's confident Ms Fung will put us as her top priority. He also thanked the outgoing chief, Duncan Pascott, for his contributions to the hub, though he declined to comment on whether Mr Pascott had left the post voluntarily or was told to quit early. Mr Pascott himself had previously said in a social media post that he was forced out without being told why. During his five years at the ham, the Arts Hub has suffered from a variety of setbacks, from construction problems and delays to ballooning costs. Ms Fong has served a wide variety of roles in her more than three decades in government. 
She was previously the Director of Leisure and Cultural Services and Permanent Secretary for Home Affairs. She was also involved in the preparatory work for the construction of the Hong Kong Palace Museum at the Arts Hub. And overseas, thousands of protesters in Thailand calling for government reforms are filling the streets in central Bangkok for a second day. The parliament is voting on proposed constitutional reform. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. Many Thai protesters arrived wearing goggles and carrying water in case of tear gas. Large rubber ducks, a symbol of solidarity with pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, have also been carried to the scene to double as shields. Inside Thailand's parliament buildings nearby, lawmakers have been voting on six proposals to alter the constitution that was put in place following a military coup in 2014. A seventh proposal, which advocated a complete overhaul, including a reduced role for the monarchy, was rejected outright. The head of the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, Steve Dixon, has signed an order permitting the grounded Boeing 737 MAX to fly again. The aircraft was banned from flying after two crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, which killed 346 people. Here's the BBC's Theo Leggett. This is a major milestone for Boeing. The 737 MAX was a flawed aircraft. The crashes occurred because of the failure of a single sensor, which in each case prompted flight control software to put the plane into a catastrophic dive, which the pilots were unable to prevent. US politicians were scathing about decisions taken within the company and by the regulator, the FAA. The aircraft, once the best-selling model in Boeing's history, will now be allowed to fly again. But each existing aircraft will first need changes to its software and wiring, while pilots will have to undergo extra training. Back locally, health authorities have reported one new local case of COVID-19 with an unknown source. The latest patient is a 76-year-old taxi driver who lives in Sha Tin and works mainly in Kowloon. He was one of the preliminary positive cases announced yesterday and the latest in a recent spate of infections involving cabbies. Two other local cases were also reported today and they're linked to previous infections. Some Hong Kong people living in Macau and Guangdong have started signing up for a travel scheme which will allow them to return to the territory without having to undergo 14 days of quarantine. Priscilla Ng reports. The return to Hong Kong scheme, which will begin on November 23rd, will have a daily quota of 5,000 people. Up to 3,000 residents will be allowed to enter through the Shenzhen Bay border crossing per day and 2,000 via the Hong Kong-Zhuhai-Macau Bridge. Returnees are required to register online in advance and must demonstrate that they had tested negative for coronavirus in the past three days at one of 39 recognized medical facilities in Guangdong or one of four in Macau. One of those signing up for the scheme, a woman surnamed Chan, told RTHK she had registered for her parents who have been in the mainland for months. While she said the application process was very smooth and only took around five minutes, she was struggling to iron out the rest of the arrangements because her parents don't have smartphones and aren't technologically savvy enough to register for a Guangdong health code and complete the necessary COVID tests. Meanwhile, the government is reportedly planning to expand the quota to allow more eligible people to return to the SAR in two weeks without the need for quarantine. A report in Tsingtao Daily added that plans are also in the pipeline to extend the quarantine-free arrangement to Hong Kongers living in other mainland provinces, and officials would also look at whether it could be applied to Taiwan. 
And Taipei has decided not to renew the license of cable channel CTI News amid allegations that the station operates as a propaganda machine for Beijing. Here's Priscilla Ng again. CTI is owned by Want Want China Times Media Group, which was founded by pro-Beijing snack food tycoon Tsai Ing-ming. Its six-year broadcast license is due to expire on December 11th, and following a final review, all seven members sitting on the National Communications Commission decided unanimously not to renew its license. The commission says the station had been unprofessional in its management and reporting, saying CTI had been warned and fined dozens of times for airing unconfirmed and highly exaggerated news reports. Previously, the media regulator also slammed CTI for being biased towards mainland-friendly politicians. It cited the 2018 Kaohsiung City mayoral election as an example, saying the proportion of news reports covering pro-Beijing Han Kuo-yu and rival Chen Shi-mai was 90% versus 5.7%. It also said there was evidence to show that the group's chairman had interfered in the editorial independence of CTI. The watchdog urged all media bosses to keep their hands off their news departments in order to safeguard freedom of the press. And a reminder, sorry, three men have been jailed in Taiwan for attacking one of the kidnapped Causeway Bay booksellers with red paint in April, just days before he opened a new store in Taipei. Lam Wenqi fled Hong Kong over fears he would be extradited to the mainland. Priscilla Ng, report. The Taipei District Court heard how Mr. Lam was attacked while having breakfast at a cafe in the city's Zhongshan District on April the 21st, just days before he opened a new bookshop in the area. The assailants claimed they carried out the assault to make a political statement. The three men were convicted of causing bodily injury, coercion, public insult and damage. A 51-year-old considered to be the mastermind of the attack has been given a four-month prison term. The two other defendants, who are brothers, have been jailed for three months. The judge condemned the trio for failing to respect the political views and values of other people, saying deterrent sentences were needed to reflect the severity of the offenses. Mr. Lam was one of five people linked to a bookstore in Causeway Bay who vanished in late 2015. All of them later resurfaced on the mainland and were accused of various crimes there. Mr. Lam returned to Hong Kong while on bail and revealed how he was taken away by security forces on the mainland and detained for weeks. He fled to Taiwan in April last year, citing fears he would be sent back to the mainland under the new extradition laws Hong Kong was planning but eventually dropped due to the massive protests. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. Police arrest three former pro-democracy lawmakers over protests inside LegCo earlier this year. A long-awaited second route to the airport will open before the end of the year. And Taipei pulls the plug on cable channel CTI News amid allegations that it's operating as a propaganda machine for Beijing. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's news wrap program. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has lamented the wearing of masks, becoming what he called a political statement. And there are signs now that some of the most anti-mask Republican governors in the U.S. are relenting. 
North Dakota has the country's highest rates of daily new cases. The Republican governor there has just U-turned and told residents to wear face coverings indoors and out if they can't manage to socially distance. The governor of Iowa also changed her policies. But South Dakota's governor is still resisting the idea that masks should be mandatory, despite having the second highest infection rate in the nation. Dr Ngozi Ezeke is the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. We are facing significant stress on our hospital systems. We do have, not all, but we do have hospitals that are already over capacity. Uh, we have issues with staffing in the hospitals because the COVID infection has not spared the healthcare workers, not necessarily that they contracted it from work, but from their community activities outside of work, they have been exposed and not quarantine, they have been infected and are isolating. So it's making it more difficult to care for the growing numbers of individuals that are in the hospital with COVID as well as other ailments that would take someone to the hospital. I'm just feeling the pain that I think all Illinoisans should be feeling when we think about the countless numbers of individuals that started with us and uh, are no longer here this year. Uh, and it's it's sad because we are increasing those numbers every day and we're, we don't have a finish line in the immediate future. So the numbers of families that will be grieving the loss of a loved one will continue to grow until we turn this around. We've been giving that message incessantly for months now. You know, the governor and I and other local health departments, all the public health officials. But I think, you know, it's part of the fatigue. And so we know that we need to recruit some additional messengers. And so we're really pushing on our hospital partners. We want doctors from the community who people know that that might be their own doctor that work at the hospital that they would need if they not if they had to seek care. We want those individuals to keep hammering the same message. We are identifying community ambassadors, uh, religious leaders in the community, moms who are active in their school organizations, popular young people who are active on social media. We're looking for just a diverse array of participants to go forth with this message within their spheres so that people can have that personal connection to someone giving them that same message. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has come under fire for reportedly telling a virtual meeting of MPs from his Conservative Party that devolution has been a disaster for Scotland. The government has sought to play down the remarks saying that, gr that granting autonomy for Scotland in some areas has been mishandled and led to the growth of separatism. Opinion polls now indicate that support for secession is at its highest ever level. Brexit is one factor, while another is discontent with London's handling of the pandemic. The BBC's James Cook reports. Come on, girls. Come on, Nan. Sally Williams is talking to her cows. She farms just a few miles north of the salmon-rich river, which divides Scotland and England. This 300-year-old union is now under strain. And one reason, says Sally, is Brexit. I think about the world I want my children growing up in. And a Brexit world is definitely not that world. But are you not worried about the prospect of a border just down the road? Yeah, I think it, it, it would be naive to think that there aren't going to be challenges and that if we were independent, it's not the land of milk and honey on day one. It is nothing to do with nationality or nationalism. 
Well, we've come right to the other end of the country now. We're heading north into Aberdeenshire, and we're going to meet a farmer who has a very different point of view. Steady! Away! Floss! Away! Michelle Stephen, herding sheep with Flossie, is also worried about the impact of leaving the European Union. But she thinks for Scotland to leave the UK would be even more disruptive. What do you think Brexit has, has done to the debate about Scotland's future? I think it has, it has changed because if, if Scotland was to become an independent nation, then it's, well, do we stay independent or do we go out of the EU or do we go back into the EU? So it's a lot of uncertainty. We are better staying with England and then we've got a louder voice. But Brexit isn't the only thing stirring up Scottish politics. Boris Johnson has announced the most dramatic limits to people's lives in living memory to try to stop the spread. If you don't follow the rules, the police will have the powers to enforce them. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is not popular in Scotland and his performance during the pandemic has prompted some voters, like Helen Robertson, a hairdresser, to rethink their opposition to independence. Well, especially with Covid coming along anyway and we've, we've got bungling Boris down in London, he's really not helped matters. He's actually strengthened people's feelings about independence. I campaigned for yes, I convinced everybody I knew that um, it was the best thing to do. Um, That's Amy Lee Freoli. Six years ago, when Scotland said no to independence, she campaigned for a yes vote. Now, she's changed her mind. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and had Scotland voted independence in 2014, we would have been very unstable economically at this point. We wouldn't have found our feet yet. Um, we couldn't have given the economic support that the UK government's given. These clattering barrels on the west coast island of Isla are the sound of the whisky industry, worth $7 billion a year. Along with a national drink, Scotland also has a national police force, law courts, hospitals and schools, all run from Edinburgh. David Graham, who owns a whisky bar on Isla, says it's clear the nation can look after itself, even in tough times. What about the argument that during this pandemic, it's the UK government and the deep pockets of the UK government that have helped keep Scotland afloat? Well, it's all borrowed money. It's all from the financial markets, and rates are very cheap at the moment. And the UK as a whole includes Scotland's oil reserves, its renewables, its wind power. So that's how the UK has been able to do it. Scotland is a comparatively wealthy country, and I've always believed we can stand on our own two feet. But Anthony Wills, a distiller on the island, is worried that independence would mean higher taxes. I would suggest that one industry they might come for to, to close the gap in terms of, of the finances is the whisky industry, and that would be an appalling uh, mistake. And for you, your concerns about independence then are mainly practical, is that fair? I think very much so. I there to be persuaded. And a string of opinion polls now suggest that more and more people in Scotland are being persuaded that staying in the UK has become a greater risk than leaving it to become independent. Many people have been struggling with feelings of isolation this year, but others have actively sought it out. Perhaps none more so than sailors in this year's solo round the world yacht race, the Vandy Globe. The BBC's Nigel Adderley reports.
45,000 kilometers, 75 days at sea. The Vendée Globe is an event which draws some of the world's best sailors into a true test of endurance, navigating a course around the globe single-handed. The event has created sporting icons. Alan MacArthur became the youngest person to complete the journey at the age of just 24 in 2001. All eight previous races have been won by French sailors, but Britain's Alex Thompson is the current leader, 10 days into this year's event. Yeah, I'm just about to enter the doldrums, close to the equator. It's a bit like being in a rally car going over a mogul course. It's a difficult place, doldrums. Lots of um, thunderclouds, big gusts of wind, followed by large areas of calm. It's a very tricky place to be. The weather routing tells me I'm going to be heading south towards Rio very quickly. I should be there close to Friday, maybe. But it'll be a bit of a drag race, very fast, hard work to try and get into the Southern Ocean with a lead because generally it's a bit like a ring road on a, around a city. Once you get onto the ring road, generally you stretch away. The English dictionary definition of the word doldrums alludes to a spell of stagnation or depression, which is a state of mind which could persist due to endless days on the high seas. But Thompson has a simple technique for avoiding loneliness. I don't feel like I can feel lonely. You know, I've got a great uh, team behind me, fantastic family. You know, I can feel isolated, and, but by separating the two emotions, it enables me to be able to deal with it a bit better. And such stoicism will need to be part of every competitor's DNA. Those lucky enough to complete the course won't reach the finishing line on the French Atlantic coast until sometime in late January. They may currently be in the doldrums, but soon they're heading for the Cape of Good Hope. Operation Santa Claus 2020 is in full swing and we're raising money for 19 charities this year. One of the projects is J-Life at Fighting COVID-19, which is organised by J-Life Foundation, a charity set up eight years ago to help the poor. The group's founder, Ali Fu, says their new project will supply food packs and essential pandemic supplies to 500 families living in subdivided flats. And these families will also receive subsidies for their electricity bills. Ms Fu earlier showed Janice Wong around her family service centre in Sham Shui Po. Hi Janice, uh, welcome to John and visit our centre, JY. Thank you. Um, can you show me around? Yeah, okay, sure. You can see um, our fantasy now doing the warranty. They repack the right rice. So, um, oh, this is a Susan. <laughs> this is Susan. So, um, actually, every time we get the food like a rice, we need to check outside and then clean up and then pass to the family. So everything like this is a hygiene. We got the boxes, what's inside. Yeah, this is a, ma uh, a mask. But we need to check which level, but some is level one and some level two is different to, to arrangement because level three we will pass um, distribution to the family for they go to the hospital. So we will, they will registration, we will some family, they go to the hospital. So we need to uh, check for them and then pass to them. So for your new project, we'll be doing something similar? Yeah, for example, we have uh, like a biscuits and rice and something. So uh, the benefactor staff, the, the ladies, we were doing the food distribution for free. 
and then the other platform they will order like order the rice because this rice we gather from some donor but some rice we need to purchase by ourselves this is not so many so this is I think they have damage, so they just pass to us. But some, a lot of bright rice we need to reorder from the resources platform. And for this new project that uh, will be funded by Operation Santa Claus, who will it actually target? I think for family, some, I think, maybe they haven't any enough food, so we'll pass the free food to them. The second point, we will empower our ladies to come in for work here to... Uh, check the price, the bargain the price to buy some neat uh, uh, food products and then they send to the neat family. And, and these families, um, do, they, do most of them live in a subdivided flats? Uh, yes, yeah, subdivided flat and they all low-income family. I think uh, they didn't have any support from the government and then we welcome them to use this uh, uh, resources platform. And you mentioned Susan. Yeah, Susan. Can you tell me a bit about Susan? She come here six years before. Uh, she lived in a subdivided factory here. And now she moved to the uh, government house already. But this few years, I uh, empowered her for like, uh, we train her about computer skill. And then now that platform can give her an opportunity to try what she learned. Hello, my Susan. Hello, I'm Susan. I used to be a beneficiary of JLive. In this new project, I will be responsible for sourcing, ordering and distributing goods to the needy. I feel happy that in this process I can help other people and my own family as well. Susan says like a story. I hope Susan can share to the other beneficiary and then let them know the future. Actually, I want to empower a lot of beneficiaries to be not just take, they let to learn something, not just ask the money from government and then some donor, they can work in the outside. Like you see what I'm doing now, a lot of ladies, they can work here, they can learn a lot. And that was Ali Fu, the founder of JLife Foundation, and Susan, a volunteer for the charity project, speaking to us earlier. If you want to know more or wish to make a donation to Operation Santa Claus, please visit the Radio 3 homepage or osc.scmp.com. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Legislation on national security in Hong Kong is designed to safeguard national sovereignty, security and development interests. It will also ensure that Hong Kong becomes a safer, more stable city. The legislation is aimed at an extremely small minority of those whose behavior and activities pose threats to national security. It will not affect the legitimate rights and freedoms enjoyed and exercised by Hong Kong residents in accordance with the law. National security law preserves one country, two systems and restores stability. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. Remember. What a beautiful start. I love that sound. Welcome to Nostalgia with Ray Cordero from now until 1 a.m. This is our kind of music.
Hues of Summer, performed by Johnny Pearson and his orchestra. Together. And this song by Gordon McRae. 